Hello to the wonderful Atwood Unleashed family. So today we've got something a little bit different because Sean is away. As many of you already know, he's traveling around the country, putting together all sorts of amazing podcasts uh, based on your suggestions. Ash has sorted it all out. Ash, the wonderful producer, Ash Miracle. Sean Atwood, that is, he is off and around making these wonderful podcasts and he's doing them uh, in HD, camera setups and everything. So they're going to look and sound fantastic. The story is going to be fascinating and all of that. Now, today, there's all sorts of holidays going on to do with the Jubilee, with the royal family. There's stuff going on in America. Um, And so it just didn't work out to make a live show today. But the show must go on. That's what professionals do. So we have decided to put something together for your, well, I don't know, for your interest, for your delight, for your entertainment. That's what this is all about. So who's it going to be today? Well, I decided to put forward a couple from my podcast, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Sean thought this was a good idea as well. And I thought, who are the two favorite people I've had in recent times? And one of those would be Amanda Knox, who's become quite a good friend of mine now. And she's just the most fascinating person in the world. If you're not aware of her already, she is uh, the person who was accused wrongly and I know people are going to kick off and they're all going to say I know more than everyone okay that's fine you can do that you're welcome to do it as far as I'm concerned uh, this was a case of uh, wrongful imprisonment she was accused of murdering her flatmate Meredith Kircher and because of certain ways that she acted and looked uh, although she refutes this, uh, she was sort of deemed the this murderess. This, and we we all sort of wanted to believe it. You know, we we sort of fell for the sensationalism, and we went, oh, well, she definitely did it because that would make for a very sexy, enticing, true crime story. Um, and yeah, I know people are going to disagree, and you're welcome to put it all in the chat, put it all in the comments. You are f- fine with doing that. Um, but but whatever you think of her, it makes for a fascinating interview. I think she's a lot of fun. She's very interesting, but she's also very emotional about what happened. And we speak about the profundity—a great word there that I like—profundity of what was going on and what happened. Now, the second one is Molly Bloom. So many of you will have seen Molly's Game on Netflix. Um, If you haven't, quickly go watch it and then come back here. It's one of the best films of recent years. And Molly is somebody who was an Olympic skier. Well, she was going to be an Olympic skier. She got a back injury and didn't sort of know what to do with her life. Somehow fell in with sort of the club and poker scene and started hosting her own poker events. She was really young at this point. And along to these events came the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, and some of the most famous actors, the Olsen twins, really, really big names started coming along. And the stakes got bigger and bigger and bigger. The FBI started getting involved, and the Russian mafia started getting involved on the other side. And at one point, they put a gun in her mouth, which, and she describes the actual sensation of having a gun in your mouth. She's one of the coolest people I've ever spoken to as well. And there is a bit of a theme here, which is two incredibly strong, powerful women who have been through an awful lot. And I think we do, I'm very wary of of sounding worthy or like, you know, trying to get into causes and things like that. So I don't want to lecture or anything like that. But YouTube and YouTubers, we do have a lot of, particularly in sort of the true crime and the sort of these, it does tend to be male focused. And I think it's going to be quite nice just to have a couple of, uh, really really impressive influential women on today 
because why not? So I hope you guys really, really enjoy this. These originally came from my podcast, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. If you enjoy it, let us know. Maybe we'll do it next week because next week we might also be off. And then, of course, the following week, we will be back with typical Atwood Unleashed. If you're listening to this on the audio podcast as well, I'm not sure if Sean's putting this out on there yet. But yeah, do come along, um, listen to the other episodes on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. That's where these came from. Both of our guests tonight have got their own audio podcast. So do check out Amanda Knox's Labyrinths, about uh, which she does with her husband, I should say, Christopher Robinson. And that's about uh, the falls from grace and then the getting back to earth kind of thing being lost and then found i should say um and obviously her own story being imprisoned and then exonerated is a fantastic example and she interviews all sorts of people about their stories and then molly bloom has one called torched which is about the most amazing unexpected stories that have happened at the olympics because of course she was uh supposed to be an olympic skier before that terrible injury befell her and all sorts of things so do check that out, those out do check those out amanda knox labyrinths and um molly bloom's torched those are really really cool podcasts and follow them on twitter and social media and stuff say that you heard it here do all that stuff support our guests and do also subscribe to sean's lovely patreon it helps him to do all the stuff he's doing at the moment with his podcasts and that helps him to pay me to come on and present as well so it's a huge help if you sign up to his patreon uh thing sean atwood and all that and uh if you if you watch these and you haven't subscribed do subscribe to sean's channel we are here pretty much every wednesday night doing our live shows typically but this one is two pre-recorded interviews plus me just standing here at the beginning saying hello can't argue with me saying hello can you just saying hello so without further ado i will introduce you to my first guest guest it's amanda knox there's like a lot of confidence to call your husband boo in front of uh, someone oh really is it yeah. a thing <laughs> I, I want, well maybe because it's a really american is if it was like babe or something I, like we'd say that as well but i think boo is very american so like my british ears mm. really heard that yeah, so I'd be like, you know, sugar buns or something. <laughs> it's like, what? This is a little too intimate. <laughs> <laughs> can you do? Can you do a British accent? Um, I would probably offend everyone who <laughs> listens to you if I tried. Yeah. I remember doing a British accent once for a um, high school play, and I got nominated for an award for that play. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you must be good at it. I, I can imagine why you don't want to do it. But I, 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 yeah, I do a lot of accents and I'm really bad at them. And it's the one thing I wish I could do. <laughs> I think I can I can do John Ronson. I've been doing him accidentally whenever I've like, introduced him or said his name, like John Ronson. Yeah. And then whenever he says it's like this episode by me, John Ronson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I love you so much. Oh my God. <laughs> I just want to sit here and do accents now. Oh. <laughs> but you're good at like stuff like that, aren't you? Because you, I, I remember, and we'll get into lots of serious stuff, of course, but like one thing watching your documentary, Manda Knox on Netflix that I picked up on was you were reading Harry Potter in German, right? Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. speak Italian as well. I mean, you're a bit of, are you a, a proper linguist? I my husband definitely thinks so. I um I really enjoy languages. I've grown up, you know, my mom was born in Germany, so I grew up with the sense that oh. there are other cultures and other languages and they're all really interesting and and worth exploring and I love how 
I love that shift that happens in your mind when you go from translating in your brain to just speaking another language in your brain. That is a really cool shift that I've experienced before. Um, And I just love it. I, I think it's a super fun way to be creative and to be silly because ultimately when you're learning another language, you kind of have to just be willing to sound like an idiot around people <laughs> and just like, accept it and and own it um, and be willing to make um, interesting mistakes that um, I remember there are numerous times that I accidentally invented something in the Italian language because I was trying to express something and I didn't have the right word for it. Um, Like uh, a good example of this was um, I invented the word conchalina because I be about a vagina, isn't it? No. No? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, Concha in Spanish is is vagina. (laughs) Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah, yeah, no. The the fun word for vagina that I heard in Italy was patata, just potato. And I was like, it doesn't look anything like a potato. But (laughs) conchalina Conchalina was, I knew the word for roommate was coinquilina. And Mm. co meaning with. So I was in a cell. And so Concellina, my cellmate. It's not an actual Italian word. I just said it one day and um, someone was like, that was very clever of you. That's not a word, though. (laughs) That's more like you'd have had more luck in German doing that, wouldn't you? Because you could just put all these things together. Just smash words together. Yeah. My my girlfriend is Argentine, and I so I thought the kind of mistake you were going to say is like because I was talking to a family, and her family are all very serious. I don't know if they listen. To, well, they don't speak that much. Oh no, I think her cousin does listen. The, the cousin will know that her dad can be very very serious and scary and stuff. Okay. And I said like voy a ponerla somewhere. I'm going to put it somewhere. Ponerla, mm. but ponerla means fuck her, as in my girlfriend. And that was like she just went completely quiet and just looked at me. And I was like, what, what, what? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Isn't that funny how just like those casual everyday words also can just mean having sex. And it's just that's all languages do that, though. Just the word to do. Like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was. That was the problem, especially, I guess, Spanish and Italian. I don't want to offend any Spanish or Italian native speakers, but I bet there are more uh, um, metaphors and things, don't you think? Well, and if you say you want to eat a potato, suddenly you're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. And that concha one I said before, concha is just a shell. But in Argentina... Okay, yeah, yeah. Like a conch, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How was it with John Ronson? He was on your podcast, right? Yes, he was. And he's also very kindly, you know, talked to me on the phone at various times and given me, oh. um, you know, thoughts about uh, just writing and journalism ethics and and all of that he's given me some i've reached out to him behind the scenes to ask questions about like hey do you think this person is a trustworthy person to talk to or whatever it is um and honestly like i invited him to my wedding (laughs) he was at my wedding (laughs) like he's a he's someone who i um I like to say I have like a professional crush on because I just really respect the way that he goes about his business, which is like, you know, investigative journalism, but with a very self-aware, um, humorous bent. And I just love that. That That is my perfect form of, of uh, 
consuming media, I guess. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I um, said to him, do you consider yourself a hu- humorist? And he said, he waited a while and he said, uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't say. <laughs> In the most know. like hilarious way possible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then afterwards, I thought, I'm sure he is a bit, because I think there is that, I think that journalism you're referring to, especially that self-deprecative journalism can be very funny. Um, and it, it can go like really far one way, like Sasha Baron Cohen, it's comedy. Oh, you sure. Know, that's, that's more comedy than journalism. And then you've got yeah. John Ronson, it's more journalism. And I went on his website and it says, John Ronson, humorist and journalist. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you said no. And I, oh, but too late now. Oh, did you oh, ask him about that. me? Um, you know, I didn't. Um, you should have. I just assumed <laughs> that you were cool. I'm not. <laughs> I'm horrible. Don't. Oh, no, really? No, Why? No. Why do you say that? No, I'm not. You know what it is? It's, it is that stuff. You can't, you can't ever... British people, I mean, Ricky Gervais says this about the difference between British and American because he, he obviously lived in America a long time. He said, in America, you're allowed to talk yourself up and he quite enjoys mm. that. And in the UK, if you do that, as soon as you do that, there's like a queue of people, a line of people, I should say, like waiting to tear you down and be like, oh, you so- look at you, Mr. Big Shot. So, huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a good guy. I'm a bad guy and a bad journalist. That's what we have to say. Oh, I'm sorry. That doesn't sound very affirming. <laughs> yeah, but I don't really mean it. Deep down, I think I'm a wonderful journalist. Are you a journalist? Do you think, is that what you would classify yourself as? Yes, in the sense that um, I am invested in other people's true stories. And um, I like to, what I do professionally today is... I um, attempt to tell true stories in an ethical, entertaining way. Yeah, I I think you do a great job of it. Um, You're a very smart person, switched on. I I think that's something that, um, you know, at the time of Meredith's murder, that's my segue into into that. Uh, obviously, people talked about your looks a lot, but it was also that intelligence as a piercing intelligence. Like, there's not much you can say to what can you say to someone who says that to you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is like I that's uh, that's interesting that you say that because I feel like I didn't really have a chance like very very early on to present myself as intelligent or not intelligent. I mean, it was a long time before I was even in a courtroom and able to like say something aloud to a in a public way um, and address the accusations that were being thrown at me. Um, I feel like for a good year there, I was just a blank slate and everyone could just throw whatever ideas and uh, project whatever thoughts about me that they wanted to without basically on with no information so well the um, little information we had was that you were studying abroad which already puts you in you know intellectually curious and ambitious and then the more that we did hear you speak of course in the documentary there's just there's there is an intelligence there that I think people find really interesting but yeah when you're have doing these interviews and I should say now that I I I I'm as as close as possible to knowing that you had nothing to do with this this murder and and it's mad uh, and I feel so bad for you with with everything that happened. I, it's the it's the Thanks. worst thing. Do do you do these? Does that actually? You know what? Does that still mean something to you to hear that? Is it still helpful? Yes, one hundred percent. That means a lot to me. Um, 
Because I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know when I walk into a room if someone is secretly wondering if I'm a murderer or not. How does that feel? I mean, I don't feel like I have to convince anyone necessarily. Like, it's I just kind of always in the back of my mind wonder if someone who's sitting across from me is wondering that. Um I even had like a moment today when I was um, making lunch, actually, um, where like I use Marco Polo sometimes. And um, do you know that app? It's basically just like um, uh, it's an app that is like a walkie talkie. It's just you send sort of videos back and forth with your friends and it keeps a log of them or whatever. And it's really good if you have if you're like busy and you have your you know, your hands are full. It's really good for moms, honestly, because they're like juggling child and you know, groceries. And there's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Um, And I was getting lunch ready. And I was I'm chopping some tomatoes for lunch. And like a part of me was like, I wonder if the person who's receiving this video is having a weird thought about watching me chop tomatoes. Like, I don't know. I just like I know that like, some people have weird thoughts about me. And, um, and that's not in my control. And I try not to, like, be bothered by it. And it doesn't really change, like, it doesn't, you know, impact my day-to-day life in a huge way. But it does impact my relationship with the world a little bit. Yeah, you were on James McMahon's podcast, Shame. And I only listened to the first few minutes because I never listened to other podcasts. Because if they ask the same (laughs) questions I ask, then I I then don't want to ask those questions. And I want to be able to ask them fresh. Um, But did he tell you about, because he was on my podcast as well to talk about his OCD. um, And his worst nightmare is that everybody thinks he's a murderer. Did he tell you about that? No, he did not tell me that. Maybe he thought it was inappropriate to say Interesting. I mean, why would he, I mean, I guess OCD, lots of crazy thoughts go come into your mind and you can get, I guess, like, that's the thing about OCD. You just sort of get fixated on one sort of nightmarish idea and then it just, you, confirmation bias, you see it everywhere. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah. And Ugh. that's the worst, pretty much the worst thing he can think of. He thinks that everybody yeah. will think he's a serial killer or, you know, a killer. So it just mm. shows that's the worst thing. And that's what you have to live with. But it's been so many years now. But but like you say, you still you still have to go through that. Do, do journalists ever do, with journalists? Do you ever get that impression that they're sort of like, mm-hmm? well, interestingly enough, um, I you know those you know those big name journalists who only have ten minutes to think about you before they're on to their next story. Oh yeah. Like I do get weird vibes from them sometimes where. I will be sitting for an interview and then they'll say something off, you know, off camera that's like, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, I don't really have an opinion about your case. As if that's like reassuring to me, (laughs) like, oh, okay, so you don't have an opinion about whether or not I'm a murderer. Cool. I'm glad that I don't. (laughs) What? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm glad that we're just sitting here like equals then just having a pleasant conversation. I don't know. I, I I feel like when I talk to people um, or at least especially when I talk to people in the seat with the journalist hat on, I want to feel like I've done my homework and I want to feel like I understand where they're coming from. And I don't want to just take this sort of nonchalant um 
non-committal attitude towards them. Um, even if I can, I can say like, hey, I'm sitting across from you and I've done a ton of homework and I don't know what to think. It's very different to say that than like, oh, by the way, like, whatever, we're just going to be doing this interview now. <laughs> it's bizarre. It, people are just very rude, though, as well. Like, oh, yeah, I just can't be bothered. I mean, you spent three years of your life. Was it three or four years of your life in prison? It was nearly four years. So I was imprisoned at the beginning of November 2007, and I was released in October of 2011. I mean, usually I would get people to sort of go over what happened, that kind of thing. But I think people are so familiar with your story. But but yeah, I mean, those few years in prison, did you think you'd ever get out? Um, sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. Um, early on, I truly, truly felt like it was just a huge misunderstanding that would get worked out. And I had total faith in the authorities or the adults in the room that somebody would be an adult in the room and figure this out. And um, but after I was convicted, I had to I very, very quickly had an existential shift happen where I realized no one's an adult in the room and I can't actually rely on the truth anymore. And so I just have to make do with what life has given me um, and whatever that may be and not sort of wait for the world to right itself again and instead to just see clearly the world that was around me and try to make life worth living because that was like the ultimate challenge is like it was this place of incredible suffering and limitation and deprivation and I kept sort of waiting to be allowed to get out of that instead of in allowing myself to think like how do I live a life that's worth living under these circumstances so after the conviction, that's when I started to shift my perspective of my role in the world and my role in this very small, cramped space that I was trapped in and um, what it meant that my identity no longer uh, actually represented me, um, that kind of thing. Did you make friends in there? I had a few friends. Um, I didn't make friends universally. Um, most of the time, I tried to be as invisible as possible. Um, I was the odd one out. I was younger than most of the people in prison. I was um, the most highly educated of the people who were around me. Um, I was one of the few people who had all of my teeth. Um, oh my I was like, it, it, it's like the kinds of people that I was around were people who, I mean, they're across the board because it, there are different things that lead different people to prison. But the vast majority of the women that I was inside with were people who were extremely neglected, um, who I, I lived with two sisters who never went to school and couldn't read or write and couldn't understand how to read an analog clock. Like it, I had to explain to them once I realized once when talking to them about how far away my home was from where we were, that they didn't realize that the earth was a sphere. Like it was that level of just like disconnect from the sort of social world that I thought everyone had access to. So really it was um, when I made friends um 
I made friends particularly with the one other American woman who I was imprisoned with who was in her 50s when I was in prison. And she kind of took me under her wing. Um, she she was more of a badass than I was. I was definitely a pushover. And she tried to, like, protect me from people who were, who would might take advantage of me. Um, but in the meantime, I also tried to be useful. Um, I tried to... Um, apply like when I was imagining living in that prison cell for 26 years I kept thinking like what is my role here what how am I a part of this community that feels so alien to me and I realized that you know I can read and write and I can translate between English and Italian and that was what I did the vast majority of the time. There were a lot of women who weren't even Italian, um, a lot of women from like Nigeria or different parts of Africa who um, were, you know, very poor and who had been convinced to be drug mules or prostitutes. And they didn't speak Italian very well, so they didn't understand all of their court documents. And so I helped them navigate the, the language barrier a lot of the time. It's a horrible experience, and I am very. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. the 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 documentary. You know what's? It's a funny thing about human nature that um, sometimes the things that are uh, the most emotional when you're watching. So I was watching this. I watched a documentary of my mum the other day. Actually, I, I had watched it years ago, but I watched mm-hmm. it again. And the bit that got me very emotional. I felt very sad for you. Uh, all the sad bits, you know, that you have to go to prison, and obviously sad about Meredith and everything. And yeah. for some reason, the bit that made me cry was uh, when you, um, when you, when you would, what, what's the word for it? When you're being, uh, when you're absolved, is that the word? Yeah, um, acquitted. Yeah, acquitted. When you're being, yeah. let me say that again because I sound like an idiot. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, the bit that made me emotional was when you'd been acquitted and your family are with you. There's a couple of times. There's the first time in Italy and then another time in the States. And both times I found I was just like crying my eyes out. Why? What do you mm. think that is? I don't know if you'll even know what this is. What is that about human nature? Could you take me through those feelings that you had when you when you were acquitted and just being around your family? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, clearly I, um, I was so <laughs> like, I was also like, bawling my eyes out when I was acquitted um, as you know if you look back at old footage that's what happened and to such an extent that the people um, the guards that were around me so the first time I was acquitted the time that I was released from prison I was bawling my eyes out so much that the guards who were accompanying me thought that I misunderstood what the verdict was And they were explaining to me after they took me out of the courtroom, like, no, you don't understand. You won. And I was like, no, no, I I understand. (laughs) I like I understand. I just I heard the the judge say that I'm getting released from prison. Like I I heard that. Um, I think um, there had been this feeling of like holding on and holding my breath. Um, that I didn't realize even that I was, I didn't realize how much I felt like I was underwater. And and that moment of like, you're being released was like coming to the surface and just like having air again. Um, it was such a shocking feeling. Um, and, you know, clearly 
the fact that I had been convicted and I no longer had faith that anything would ever work out ever again um, made it so that that moment of arriving for another verdict was supercharged for me because I knew, I knew how badly it could go. And I didn't, and I was like arriving at that place sort of preparing myself to be devastated and trying to like hold myself together to not be broken by the experience because I knew how hard it hurt me the first time I was convicted and then to hear the other thing like just the like this this complete release and and access like just and my family was crying too and like we were all crying because it was this feeling of not having to fight anymore. Like when you have your guard up and your fight or flight, like that, that feeling of like, oh, I can, I can let go. And all of that pain that I've been holding on to no longer has the floodgate up. I can now just sort of release that pain like that. It was that mixture of like devastation and relief. Um, And, and then, of course, interestingly enough, I was still on trial for another four years without, you know, yeah, that was a whole other thing. But that moment, like, it's a, it was a very, very real thing to feel like I didn't have to be strong for myself in the same way anymore. Did you get ill after that? Because I've always found, you know, like when you've got exams, obviously this is like a hundred times stronger than that, but <laughs> which is why I imagine, you know, when you've, you're like stressed and, st- and then finally it's like, oh, I'm all done. I always get ill, like like a cold or something. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't remember getting a cold. What I do remember is that I was not hungry. I, w- I, I couldn't eat for like a week. And I, th- I attributed it to I'm going from a very, very limited environment where I'm like in the same cell with the same concrete walls for four years straight. And then suddenly I'm like in a world where there's trees and children and sunlight and, and darkness and grass under my feet and lots of people talking to me. And like I, I sort of attributed it to overload. Like I had just been like suddenly an adrenaline rush and like taking in too much information. And so I couldn't really I was like processing too much information and I just couldn't I like my appetite didn't come back for a good week, Um, which was funny because, of course, like as soon as I get home, my family just wants to feed me cake and sushi and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I I can't even sleep. I can't even eat. I just need to sort of like sit here and stare at a wall for a second because I have not spoken to people that I love for more than an hour at a time for four years. So, and in English as well. Like, and in English as well. I kept like I kept falling into Italian without realizing it. And my family had to be like, Amanda, English. Um, and I forgot words in English. And I had to remember how to like shift my brain again. Do you think um, you were, there's that Gladwellian thing, you know, were you convicted on on not showing the right physical uh, gestures at the time of the murder um i'm you know i don't know there's been a lot of speculation about why i was convicted when there was no evidence and i think you have to go back to 
before the investigators really had any evidence, like in those first few days before I was ever arrested and even accused. And I think that there was a very different thing that was happening after I was accused and after I was arrested. At that point, it became the detectives and the prosecution having to justify that very drastic action of arresting and accusing somebody and claiming that the case was closed. And so having to sort of fall back and and rally the troops and try to, like, perform and and prove a theory once the evidence came in and just sort of, like, force that theory through. Um, But prior to that, um, much has been made about how I was reacting differently than, say, like, Meredith's English friends or my other roommates even. And I had a thought actually somewhat recently over this past year um, where it, I feel like it somewhat helps explain to me also why I mean, a lot like I've had people say things to me like, well, it's also like a cultural thing, right? Like you're from a German family. You tend to be very stoic people. So you react to crises and drama in a very different way than like someone who's from a romantic um, culture like Italy, where it's very sort of outwardly expressive. And I think that that's part of it. That's certainly part of it. I do have the tendency in moments of crises and shock to get very like deer in headlights um, to just sort of like pause and like not be able to move. This actually happened in prison with like this almost riot that happened when another girl attacked another girl very near me. And I just sort of like I, I couldn't move like I I actually stopped moving and I and people were yelling at me to get out of the way and I just couldn't move. And someone had to like pull me out. Yeah, I froze. I froze. Right. I read about why we do that. And I forgot. Oh, why, yeah. But I read I read a whole book. Yeah. About it. Fight, flight or freeze, I think. And yeah. that's like I freeze. But beyond that, I think the other thing that I realized this past year was there was a really big difference between me and my other roommate who was there to discover the crime scene with the cops. And the biggest difference was that Filomena, um, my Italian roommate, besides being an Italian woman, um, she saw inside Meredith's room and she saw the bloody crime scene. She saw Meredith's foot um, coming out from underneath the bedroom comforter she saw the smeared blood on the walls like she saw in the very immediately everything that had happened and understood what what was what we were dealing with and she from the very get-go was very loud very hysterical um but meanwhile i did not see into meredith's room and i was standing in the kitchen when they broke down her bedroom door And so I never actually saw with my own eyes the crime scene, the gruesome reality of the situation. And so in those very early days, I didn't have the same kind of visceral reaction to this news that my roommate was dead that Philomena did. Um, And I think that if we're talking about like in those instants of first impressions when people when the cops are just arriving at the house and and taking and closing it off as a crime scene, like there was a noticeable noticeable difference between Philomena and I. But there was also a very innocent reason for that difference. And 
it had nothing to do with one person's involvement in a crime and another's not. It had everything to do with how much information the other person had access to. And I think that that's super interesting because they've also shown in studies of um, they look at like uh, biasing impact. Like now that I know all about wrongful convictions, personally, I've looked into a bunch of like research into wrongful convictions. And one of these interesting questions that people have um, is whether or not they should show juries um, crime scene footage in color or in black and white. Because what they've shown in studies is that based on the same kind of evidence, the same amount of evidence, the only difference being whether or not the crime scene footage is in color or in black and white, people are more prone to vote for guilt when they see crime scene footage in color. Because it just becomes this more like visceral reaction of wanting to attribute guilt to somebody because you are having that like emotional reaction to that color, you know, access to that image. Like it's it's almost like so real that the person like becomes um, biased. And um, but like if you give the same people the same evidence, the same information and just use a black and white photograph, they're much less likely to convict somebody, um, which is fascinating. Yeah. And, and so and you hadn't seen the visceral reality of the crime scene. But the other thing is like, so I remember at the time, because it was such a big story, hearing about it and everyone was saying, look, she's kissing her boyfriend and she, all this stuff. And then watching it back just the other day, I thought, what, I actually thought you looked incredibly sad. I, I thought like, I don't know how much, what do they want you to do? Like, and, and again, would they have asked a man in that situation to do that kind of, like they wanted you to do this histrionic kind of thing? You looked yeah. how I, th- I thought I would look like that. And maybe my partner might be trying to comfort me. And these were not, you weren't like, like, you know, passionately kissing. It was just, it was comforting one another. That's what's so annoying. Yeah, like I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that my my husband is constantly, like we actually um, have a whole podcast episode of Labyrinths where we interview Malcolm Gladwell because he, um, he also was like, oh, you know, Amanda just acts like a guilty person even though she's innocent. And that's why people assumed that she was guilty. And it's like, honey, I think you didn't, I think you're just sort of casually absorbing the fact that people were going out of their way to depict me as guilty. And they picked and chose moments and like the the picking and choosing of those three seconds of my life where Raffaele is sort of giving me a hug and pecking me on the lips to like give me like some little like comfort. The, the fact that like those images have been like zoomed in and in slow motion and on loop, like they turn what is like a very casual not passionate moment into what as pornographically depicted as possible just to again confirm that feeling of like oh she was behaving inappropriately um and yeah i look back on all of that and like those are the three seconds of my life that are the most viewed the most um studied under the microscope um seen to be like the definitive finding like moment of my life of people observing my behavior and it's me getting a kiss from my boyfriend when i'm just standing there dazed and confused um 
Yeah, not annoying that your husband has to see that stuff so often as well. You know, <laughs> I I've never seen my girlfriend kissing someone else in the past or present or future. Um, I wouldn't like it, but then I wouldn't like that she had to be in prison for years for something she didn't do as well. So yeah, I guess it weigh, turns weigh out that. he cares more about that. Part. <laughs> Thank <laughs> yeah. goodness. Okay, you, you're onto a winner. You've got a you've got a good guy. Then. Some guys might be jealous of that kind of thing. There's some really jealous people out there. I think I think yeah. Malcolm was just seeing what he maybe wanted to see because it, in that respect, because his book was all about that, so it just fitted uh, the narrative, didn't it? I read parts of that. Um, and it was really interesting because he talks about Friends, uh, the TV series, and how they overact, how how everybody is. It's almost like pantomime. It's like this really, um, and, and so I guess he's trying. And I'm I'm writing a book at the moment about secrets and and whether you can tell if someone's keeping a secret. So it would have been an oh interesting- cool, yeah. Like uh, I'm so curious. How do you like? What's what is that all about? <laughs> so you're, you're <laughs> or is that giving it away? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me a question back on this podcast. <laughs> well, that's so curious to me because like I, I, a part of me is intrigued because it's like, can you or is it also or is it just like the, um, you know, people who say that they can tell if someone's lying or not? And, it, you know, it turns out that all these techniques are all just sort of like it's a 50 50 shot if you can tell if someone's lying or not exactly. but people convince themselves that they can so I'm, I'm i'm honestly curious to know like how your research about that squares with that kind of i know that if you ha- if you keep a secret that is related to your own identity and one that could ostracize you if it came out that's the worst kind of secret that you can keep and it can do a lot of physical damage to you it can cause oh. uh cancers and ulcers and all sorts of things really so, it can actually cause cancers yeah yeah apparently that's the no evidence found. way you know, it, it causes a lot of stress though it's it's yeah and it's the, it's the going back and thinking about the secret rather than coming because you would think the stress comes from having to come up with elaborate like uh ruses and elaborate ways of uh um you know hiding what you did but it's actually just constantly it's just the the, the ruminating the thinking about it and stuff mm. but but with regards to that that bit the malcolm gladwell stuff yeah there, as you say there's there's like no evidence that anybody can tell just from looking at someone it's really interesting at the end of the amanda knox documentary you say i th- oh what is it i think i wrote it down i think you're trying to, yeah, I got wrote it down. I'm not going to do your accent, though. Oh, I really want to, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Wait, do it, do it. I'd love to know how it comes okay, okay. across. Well, it's just going to sound like any American in my head. But, that, you know, um, <laughs> you're, oh, no, because it won't be sick. Okay, I'm going to try it anyway. You're trying to find the answer in, no, right. You're, try, <laughs> you're trying to find the answer in my eyes when the answer is right over there. You're looking at me. Why? These are my eyes. They're not objective evidence. And as you said that, I had been looking at your eyes the whole time going like, you know, and I knew that I knew like she she didn't do this, but I'm also like looking at your eyes and yeah. you're so right. It was like, what am I doing? This is what do I, I think I'm in some sort of movie and I'm like ch- checking from the eyes and they're going to show me that you did a murder or something. Ridiculous. That's actually really interesting because our relationship with Docu- now that I'm now that I think about it, like our relationship with documentaries is mediated by a relationship first and foremost with movies where we expect people to be performing performing characters and indicating through gestures or through their eyes some like under like underlying truth about their character. And to be expecting that same thing, 
when you are observing just real people who are talking directly to a camera, is that is there anything to that? That's super interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Well, I think it's interesting. I think about it like my girlfriend, I've been with her seven years. I see her like every day. I know her probably uh, better than anyone knows her, except for herself, of course. She knows herself pretty well. But every day she'll do she'll react slightly different to how I expect her to right that's every mm. relationship everybody yeah. and that's the person you know the best in the world so we think we're going to like turn on a documentary and see Amanda Knox who we don't even know we never met and go well she's not reacting exactly how I'd expect her to it's like well what do we know <laughs> yeah fair enough do you ever get over to the UK gosh uh no um I am going to be talking later this week with the Manchester Innocence Project, but um, but I've never actually, like, I think the one time that I've been in England was only at the airport on my way back from Italy. Um, and a really nice person who worked for British Airways had um, managed to get me into a private room between planes that I think he said was reserved for royalty maybe (laughs) maybe maybe that was just a nice thing that he said to me to make me feel special and safe but it looked nice I mean it was very comfortable and it was obviously private so I was like well I'm I'm feeling rather special right now to I, I honestly it was so it was the exactly what I needed because the last thing I needed after being under the microscope and but also in weird isolation for four years was being suddenly thrust into a world full of people and uh, to this day I remain a little bit claustrophobic so like around big crowds of people Um, and so that was a very nice thoughtful thing for him to do. I think you'd enjoy the UK because that sort of uh, Germanic uh, stoicism that you talked about I think that's that might fit in with Britain except the thing is and this was something I wanted to ask you about is like uh, as well did you notice this big difference in the way people reacted to you in the states and in the UK uh yes tremendously um although I don't know if that had to do um with cultural cues so much as uh potentially um just the the tribalism of like the the young woman who was murdered it was a british woman and the young woman who was accused was an american woman and um and i think that there was very much this sense um that i felt a lot from well maybe this isn't totally accurate because a lot of british people came to my defense as well um but like a lot of loud trolls on the internet um would say things like, you know, you should just be happy that you're alive because what happened to you isn't as bad as what happened to Meredith. And this like constant sort of comparison between what happened to her and what happened to me as if like one negates the other somehow. Um, And I've I've called this sense the single victim fallacy where you somebody fixates in their mind like there's a story and that story has to be very clear and concise and black and white, which means there has to be one clear victim and everyone else is not a victim if there is if that's the one victim. And it's like I have never at any point suggested that what happened to Meredith isn't the worst possible thing it could possibly happen and that I'm not the lucky one to have survived. But that doesn't make 
what happened to me just a bowl full of cherries <laughs> you know like well compared to um, compared to all the guys shouting horrible things at you on the internet you're definitely not the lucky one because they haven't spent years in prison ridiculous people i you know i i, I was at she was at, meredith i think was at U- leeds university that's that, right yeah i was there at the same time and also doing really? erasmus yeah um because she did erasmus i guess to go to italy and yeah. i was doing that in france at the time um, oh. So it really like was like a big thing for me, and all my my family were like, "Be safe!" And I was like, yeah. in case like Amanda comes to get me or something in France oh. or whatever, ridiculous." But but in England, it was sort of like a no. It was a fact that you did it, that you were the murderer. It was just like for for quite a few years, and I think still a lot of people listening might might have gone into this podcast episode thinking that. And it was only years later, because obviously then I, I heard that and I thought, "Oh wow, that's interesting." I think she did that, and then got on with my life for a few yeah. years and then saw the documentary on Netflix and was like oh my god I was totally wrong and then any American I spoke to the whole time were like I can't you know they were they knew you hadn't done it but mm. British people and that's the tribalism and then you got in the documentary you got Italians getting upset because Americans on like Fox News were saying oh well you got to remember this is some backwater horrible stupid place I know and- <laughs> I know as if that explained how wrongful convictions happen which was like <laughs> that was kind of racist of them honestly like it's not yeah. like it does like as if it doesn't happen here in the US oh, like yeah. no <laughs> like no yeah. that's not but, why it happened <laughs> but that prosecutor was, was particularly do you, do you you think it was sort of sexist motivations the stuff he was saying about you being like immoral and and Meredith was the opposite and that kind of thing yeah I definitely absolutely think that um, misogyny had a huge role to play in the way that I was very casually vilified as a whore and depicted in this like dichotomous way against Meredith like me and Meredith actually had very similar interests we like to go dancing we like to have fun with friends we went to school and we studied and we you know we like to read like we we had a lot of similar interests and we were similar personality types um maybe she was like slightly quieter than me. I don't know like it, and yet like the way that we were depicted in court was as if we were exact opposites on this like spectrum of the ways that a woman can be there was like the serious pure quiet reserved never had fun meredith and then there was the out of control drug addled whore amanda knox and the fact that that was so easily just like perfectly packaged by the prosecution and that everyone just accepted that as true even though no one there was no evidence of that whatsoever like that is where I feel misogyny had a huge role to play in this case that people just assumed assumed that these horrific absolutely untrue stereotypes had any role to play in this case of two real human beings um yeah it's in the same way that like if a if a cop just goes into court and refers to the defendant as a thug because they're a young black male and everyone's like oh yeah of course he's a thug he's a young black male like it's the same thing (laughs) so you know what i mean do do you and i feel like it's a it's a bit of a loaded question maybe an unfair question but i want to ask if you miss meredith um i guess like i have complicated feelings about her um, in the same way that like Raffaele has complicated feelings about me where 
I didn't actually know her very well. I didn't know her for a very long time. I know I knew her for, you know, weeks. That's how long I knew her. And we got along really well. Like I have these great memories of going and getting um, grocery shopping with her and having to tromp up this hill with these heavy water bottles or, um, you know, taking pictures of her in her room so that she could send pictures to her family. Or, um, you know, at a certain point, I was, um, I think I had very recently met Raffaele and um, I had asked I was like, oh, I think I want to wear a skirt, but it's too cold outside. And she was like, oh, I have some tights. Do you want to borrow some tights? Like, just like I have these like nice casual memories of her. But of course, like most of my memories of her are, well, not even of her. Like the conversation around her became a conversation around this horrific thing that she experienced. And I feel like, you know, I've I've felt bad about one of my initial thoughts after learning that she was murdered, which was, oh, my God, thank God that I wasn't murdered. Like, you know, one of my very, very first thoughts, I admit, was was not, oh, my God, poor Meredith. It was, oh, my God, I could be dead. And I and I, I, I don't I can't really explain that except for it was the instinctual thing that came to mind. Um I'd have thought the same thing. Everyone would have. Anyone who says they wouldn't have is lying. And I remember that, like, in those days before that I was ar- I was arrested, um, I was making plans with Philomena and Laura, our Meredith's other two roommates, um, to meet with her family when they arrived. And talk to them I don't even know what we like what we could say other than like Meredith was really nice to us and we're so sorry and we can't believe this happened and I mean those days leading up to my arrest were very very confusing because as far as we knew there might be a serial killer on the loose it might be someone who was targeting our house specifically and who was going after us or who was wandering around just walking into people's houses murdering them like we had no idea like at at no point did it make sense that like someone who was mad at Meredith reacted this way like no one was mad at Meredith like Meredith didn't do anything like in no way did she like have what happened to her coming to her in any like even sort of indirect fucked up way like it was so out of the blue and so surreal for that reason like I could not as much as I racked my brain, think of why this had happened to her. And, you know, to this day, it still feels very surreal to me. And also very surreal that, like, I'm not dead right now. Because if I hadn't met Raffaele five days before that, I would have been home that night. And I either would have been killed alongside Meredith or maybe Rudy Gaudet wouldn't have broken into our home because he would have seen lights on and heard us talking or what, like, I don't know. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of like a weird, I don't know if I even answered your question, how I feel about Meredith. I I feel like um, she's the girl who died and I'm the girl who lived. 
and in a weird way we're like a single coin and I'm on one side and she's on another and what happened to her very well could have happened to me and what happened to me could very well have happened to her. Um, and then of course, like now, just now, I, I've become a mom and I'm for the first time thinking about what it would feel like to be Meredith's mom and to lose a daughter that way and or to be my mom and to almost lose a daughter that way. The whole thing is fucked up. And there's no getting Meredith back and there's no getting those years of my life back and everything has changed. Um, bleh, sorry, I'm rambling. You're not rambling. It's, very, <laughs> it's a, a remarkably concise ramble. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you um, would you like to reach out to her her mother? I, I guess she doesn't want anything to do with any of it, right? So, um, if the people who I've talked to are trustworthy, um, Meredith's family knows that I I would like to reach out to them and talk to them and grieve with them. Um, but I have not reached out to them directly. Um, I've done so indirectly, in part because I know that how if they're not ready to have a conversation with me, how shocking it would be to like get an answer, like a an email from me, even like the most indirect, direct way possible, an email, like. I don't think that they would feel comfortable with me knowing what their email address is. <laughs> like, I, I don't like and until I know that they would not be traumatized by me reaching out directly to them. I have let them know through through people who I know to be in contact with them that I want to talk to them. Um, and so far, I haven't received a response, but I also don't want people to f I don't want. I, I really hesitate to even answer these questions, and I almost feel bad now that I've said this much already because I don't want them to feel like they, it, they're they on my timeline to talk to me. Um, they're, have as, they've, they have a, a tremendous grief and loss and trauma to deal with as well, and I know that if I can't be a positive part of that, for them yet then then that's not my place to be so mm. i don't th i don't think you've said anything uh even remotely disrespectful i think i think it's you know you very carefully worded and, and everything you, you've said makes sense to me um and as you say i suppose it, it it changed a little bit how you looked back i suppose from from both your own family's perspective and hers having having a daughter congratulations by the way thank you yeah she's actually out there crying <laughs> so oh, no. i think my i think my husband is having a little bit of trouble juggling her at the moment but i okay. think she's teething yeah. so it's like nothing makes her happy right now <laughs> oh no the teething okay do they have to bite stuff then like is that yeah happens? yeah i have these like little sort of um they're these like training spoons that um are a little bit gummy and have like little nubbins on them that she finds really satisfying to chew on and it also sort of sort of teaches her how to stick a spoon in her mouth. So that's 
That's the strategy, at least. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make it just, and I, I made this the last sort of proper question. Um, how do you how do you make it so she grows up and, and doesn't see you as sort of Amanda Knox, the stuff that happened to Amanda Knox, rather than the stuff that Amanda Knox ha- makes happen for herself in her life? What What do you want to do? I mean, I've been trying to do that even for myself for a long time. And now that I have a daughter, the pressure's on to really figure that out. Um, I think the way that I've been dealing with it is to, um, first of all, acknowledge that this is a part of my life, not pretend like it isn't and not pretend that it doesn't have a deep impact, even to this day, on how I can and am able and what uh, to navigate through the world and what kind of opportunities I have. So accepting that that is reality because that is reality. Um, and then knowing that, knowing that there are certain limitations and there are certain opportunities, doing what feels like is going to, feels like the best thing that I can do. Like doing the best thing that you can do with whatever circumstances, wherever you are, that's the only thing that you can do. Whoever, like, I, no one chooses the circumstances that they grow up in. No one chooses the feelings that they have, the thoughts that they have, the the ideas that people have around them, the society they grow up in. All you can do is choose what you then do in that space with what you have. And I am attempting to do that, um, which means applying my perspective to other people's stories and trying to be helpful and trying to start conversations around um, institutions that so that we can improve them for the betterment of everyone. Um, But also like being willing to step away and to allow myself to just be the person who likes to listen to Weird Al at the end of the day and swing dance and sew Harry Potter costumes like that's still me. <laughs> and I'm going to be doing a lot of that with her. So um, I don't know. I, I feel like as much as I'm allowing myself to be more than the worst thing that ever happened to me, I'm going to allow her to be as curious about it or not curious about it as she wants to be. That's very beautiful. And I, I love Harry Potter as well. So I like I like that too. <laughs> Who's your favorite character? I never even thought of that. Well, <laughs> it's so hard. Okay, what's your favorite Harry. book? What's your favorite book? Oh, you know what? I recently reread all of them in German as well. Um, <gasps> I was going to show off about that at the beginning. What a nerd! I love it. Oh, good job. Okay, cool. <laughs> I've read <laughs> I love them. That. I've read them four times in four different languages. <sighs> That's You're... nerdy, isn't it? That is a, that is fantastic. I love yeah. that about you. What's your oh, favorite thank book? You. I could tell you my favorite translation is the French one because they change all the weird okay. w- words to like uh, like. Snake oh, it's a funny becomes, words. He becomes rogue, as in like a villain. A, a oh, villain. interesting. Yeah, and Hogwarts is Poudlard. But uh, Poudlard. favorite book, I just think they got better as they went along because I beca- I got I grew with them because I was what, eleven. Yeah, well, we're about the same age. I yeah. think you're a bit a bit older. I'm thirty two. I'm thirty four. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting you're getting old. Um, I'll be there in two years. Though, so. <laughs> yeah, um, they they're just brilliant, aren't they? So yeah, I think they got better as they went along for me because I was just so so. By the end, I was like reading through tears and then watching the mm-hmm. movies through tears at the end. What about you? 
I think um, my favorite book is everyone assumes it's The Prisoner of Azkaban because it's a wrongful conviction story. Uh, But um, (laughs) actually, my favorite, that is a great one. um, But my favorite one is the fifth book, actually, Order of the Phoenix. And um, a big reason for that is because that is, that's when Harry is really, really struggling. And it's when the world has very much turned against him and are falsely accusing him all the time. And he's feeling isolated and vilified and alone and crazy and um, moody. And, moody um, and impacted by this like deep darkness that um, is just hurting him, but that he rejects. And that was a really, really beautiful metaphor for my struggle in prison, how I was just like struggling against feeling bitter and angry and, you know, feeling like absolutely abandoned and isolated and confused and um, and like I couldn't count on the institutions and the people I thought I could count on. Like Harry's going through so much internal pain in order of the phoenix and um and i'm just i i feel so bad for him in that in that book and i i don't know i just a lot of people hate that book because of how dark it gets and i i sort of like in a rebellious way feel like that has to be my favorite book because it's willing it's like his darkest moment um I and I respect that. That I, I think all all my favorite art is dark stuff. Mm. You know, right? Do you, do you must you must find that with music and stuff then as well? Maybe or is it just this particular thing? Um, well, like, just like you, I grew up with the Harry Potter stories, and then um, so I sort of matured alongside him, and then I weirdly had through this like crazy wrongful conviction experience access to emotions that the characters had access to that I didn't have access to before um, that continues to resonate with me and help me process. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I grew up listening to heavy metal just as much as I was listening to Disney music. So I'm kind of across the board. Um, I also love humor though. Like I love making, I love just, Anything that um, interrogates the absurdity of life and fate and um, and finds levity in the gravity. Who's your favorite comedian or, or comedy film we can say as well? Mm, that's I don't know who hard. I'd say. Isn't it weird when people ask these questions, you suddenly can't think. You can't name a single comedian I ever. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think well, of I can, one. <laughs> I can think of one that... Um, I've watched recently. It's not it's not my favorite because asking someone's favorite favorite, but like it is it's up there because it continuously makes me laugh. Um have you seen Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping? I think I did. Is it that guy from Saturday Night Yeah, Live? it's the Lonely Island guy. Yes, um, yes, yes. and it's it's like it's <laughs> so stupid and so yeah. funny and I actually really like the music in it. So, I love musicals and it's basically like a hilarious musical. So, I'm into it. I did watch that. He's great. <laughs>
did, did you see those questions? You don't, if you don't have time, don't worry about it. But do you know those questions? I sent some questions. Oh, oh I forgot. To, but I'm conscious you might have to tend to your baby and stuff like that. So Yeah, I might have to run and do do baby stuff. But if you mm. want, I could find the that list of questions and then email you responses if that works for you no, don't worry about it don't worry about it i'll just i'll just say okay. amanda was was too busy for you guys no i'll just say like <laughs> you know they, they know people john ronson i didn't even ask him because i was just too i was scared he was like the only person that when i interviewed him uh it wasn't him that popped up in the zoom it was like a bbc person and i was like oh oh hello oh, bbc dear. person <laughs> and then she was like Hi there. Uh, John's uh, going to be here in two minutes. Just want to make sure everything's okay. And I was like, fuck, you know. <laughs> I was so scared. And as you know, because you know John, you'll know yeah. that I had, I had no reason to be scared. But I, I'm, no. I've been such a fan of his for so long. And he came in and as like as he came into the the three of us thing, he was already going like, ho, 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 hello, hello. I know, I, was, I know. Isn't he fantastic? Oh, <laughs> I was so at ease. But I've got to say, you're the same thing, you know. It was, it's been such a pleasure talking to you because you also Aww. came in and were just like smiling from the get-go and so easy to talk to and Aww. I know you must have done so many of these so I, I really appreciate um that that you know being your helpfulness in in the interview oh of course yeah no thank you um and yeah I I get the same vibe from John and don't feel bad that you were like fangirling because I <laughs> I am not like a fangirl but when I met John Ronson for the first time I was sweating. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't talk. I was so embarrassing. (laughs) He was so nice about it too. So I, I always appreciate that about anyone. (laughs) Wow. So that is one of my favorite interviews ever. I love doing that. It was really interesting to watch that back while putting this little video together. Um, she's great, really, really cool person. Like I say, I still chat back and forward with her every now and then when things pop up in the news. Um, and I'd like to get her back on at one point. That interview originally aired on on the Edge of Andrew Gold podcast. We are showing it on Atwood at least. If you're just catching up with us now, that is because Sean is away doing his podcasts all around the country filming them in super high definition for your viewing entertainment, uh, some of your suggestions as well. So that's going to be really, really good. And tonight we weren't able to do a live show, but we figured the show must go on. Uh, And rather than put out old like montage clips like they did in 90s sitcoms, which were always the most boring episodes because you've already seen and heard them, we thought we'd put out a couple from my podcast on the edge with Andrew Gold. These are two of my favorites. That was Amanda Knox. Coming up is Molly Bloom, the former Olympic, well, prospective Olympic uh, skier who uh, ended up hosting poker games with Toby Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio, the Olsen twins, and loads of other actors and things. She's going to name and shame some of the people involved here, uh, which is a lot, you know, quite good gossip, really. And she ended up getting chased by the FBI and the Russian mafia were after her. They put a gun in her mouth. She's so cool. Just watch this. Honestly, just if you watch anything, watch this now. She's just the coolness personified um and i was really lucky to get to speak to her hope you enjoy it keep chatting away on on the side or in the comments and all that let us know what you think if you like this maybe we'll be back with a similar thing next week because i think next week we might have to be off as well while we're doing the holidays and things like that summer holidays bloody hell and uh yeah i'll be back at the end just to say good night but here is the one and only molly bloom how are you doing molly what's going on um everything's good i just had a baby so it's a little bit of a different life at the moment and probably for the rest of my life but yeah everything's good what's having a baby like i've never done it 
uh, it's, it's transformational, you know, uh, your life changes dramatically. And I feel like you, I've changed as a human being dramatically. Um, I, in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's such a personal choice, but, um, I have been absolutely awestruck at, at how profound of an experience it is. That's so beautiful to hear. It makes me want to do it myself or have my, have my partner do it. I'll have to ask her. If she may be really hard for you to do it. But... <laughs> I'll ask her if she might want to at some point. That would be good. It's really weird because I feel like I know you because I think Jess, did you think Jessica, Jess, Jessica Chastain did a good job? I think she did an incredible job. It's sometimes freaky to watch that movie <laughs> and see how well she nailed like the, my, my speech patterns and she really got in my head. She really got inside my head. Great. I watched it yesterday, just while, um, just in preparation. It was, a th- I think, the third time I've seen it now, and it's a really funny thing. Do you ever have this if you're watching, like, for research purposes or whatever? You're, there's like a distance almost. You're not getting like that emotional, and then suddenly I found myself very emotional uh, at the end, and it was after your accidents they showed it again at the end and i don't know why it's so great when a movie director can do that because it's like why am i now suddenly there are tears coming out did you did you get emotional watching it back what was it like to watch that movie back it was a trip um so just to give you a little background the producers and aaron the writer director um said the movie's done it's edited you should probably sit in a room by yourself and watch this movie um because it's coming out to the world and so you know and I thought about it and I just said, I don't, I don't think I want to do it that way. I think I want to watch it in, in, at the premiere. And so, you know, I'm sitting in the movie theater. It's five minutes before this movie starts. There's 2000 people in the theater and I'm like, not in a good place. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> I'm like, why did I do this? I have no idea if the movie works, if it's good. Like, you know, I read the script a million years ago, but who, who can remember that? And then I started watching the movie and it was this incredibly um, deep, meaningful experience to watch that movie with 2000 people who are laughing at the parts that are funny and crying at the parts that are sad and cheering when I, you know, for for instance, when I didn't get sentenced to jail and, and you, you know, you go through these things alone, essentially, you have people around you and you have support, hopefully, but you go through them alone. And I went through that with 2000 people and it was it was a really prolific experience. Um, and it was also just super exhausting. I mean, I, I think I, I think I spent like five minutes at the party and went home and just got in bed. I bet. Did people know when they were watching the film, did they know that you were there in the, in the screening? Mm -hmm. That's awkward. Yeah. Very awkward. (laughs) I would, if I, if I was sitting near you, I would have like, laughed extra hard at the good bits and like wanted to show you I'm sad I wouldn't want you to think oh god look because it's like you want to show the person that you feel empathy for them but you're in a cinema so you're not supposed to talk really right well you're a nice guy (laughs) well I don't know about that I've had that experience myself because I've been at like film festivals when they've shown my film and because I'm on the screen as a documentary presenter it's the same thing and you're sitting there and you're like and and you get the impression I got the impression people around me were sort of laughing extra loud nudging in my direction and I just sort of wanted to disappear at that moment I just wanted to sort of you must have had that yeah yeah you feel so exposed right yeah and I mean look for you it's your life and for me it was like someone else's life I was looking into yeah but you I mean you could you're still hyper invested it's your film yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. What's what's let's go. What's the worst thing that can happen in sports? 
<laughs> uh, you know, skiing over a little pine bough, losing your ski and, and ending your career. What was that like for you? I mean, because you must have dreamed, were you dreaming and dreaming of being this, you know, making a whole career of it and then that happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was all in, you know, I was and, and, and I was quite an underdog um, because at 12 years old, I, I had that surgery and essentially they fused the top 11 vertebrae together, which I no longer had a movable thoracic spine, you know, with two really heavy metal rods. And, and my sport was, was mogul, mogul skiing. So I was such an underdog and, and nobody really kind of paid attention to, to me for most of my career. And then I made the U S development team went out on tour and had the same result as my brother, who was a prodigy. Um, you know, I got third overall uh, on the tour that year and, and then headed to the Olympic qualifiers. So for me, it was the culmination and the realization of all these hard hours and having to, you know, ski through pain and, and also ski through this doubt that you could ever even do it because of your circumstances and, and everything. And so, you know, it was a heartbreaker to get to the qualifiers and, and, you know, the, the movie um, painted it as though I, I fell, you know, that that fall was so catastrophic that I couldn't ski again. And that wasn't the truth. Um, I could, I, I could have skied again, probably. Uh, it was incredibly dangerous for me to, to ski moguls with all that, metal hardware in my back and and I was almost constantly in pain um and so I had to make a decision do I have another four years in me is it is it even a possibility for me but in a lot of ways I had I felt like I was at this sort of apex of my career and that I I really had a shot and I had dreamed about it since you know since I put skis on it must have been devastating it was it, it was devastating. I didn't know how to get past it. Is that what led you towards the whole poker and everything that followed? Because the, the movie's obviously a little ambiguous about it because it's Kevin Costner. And there's, I think that was, from what I gather from a bit of research on Aaron Sorkin, he was saying a bit of the father-daughter relationship was invented. So how much of that is 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 real? And what, and what do you think was the reason? Because that's a key scene, isn't it? It's like, why did you do it? That's that key scene at the end. Yeah. Um, I think I was primed for a rebellion. You know, I I grew up in this very high-achieving family. My youngest brother, number one in the world at 18, one world champion, was world champion three times in a row, went to two Olympics, both Olympics, he, he was number one in the world going into, then went on to uh, get drafted in the NFL and play football for the Philadelphia Eagles. On and on and on. He started a charity and uh, just sold a software company and somewhere in the middle there, uh, I think he was an Abercrombie model. So, you know, that's, that was my little brother. My middle brother, uh, is a Harvard educated cardiothoracic surgeon. Who's just the most decent human being you can imagine. And he's at Massachusetts general. And, and so I just, you know, I, I really wanted a seat at this table. Um, and I put, my whole self into it, into my sports career, you know, everything I had, I left nothing on the field and it didn't work out. And it didn't work out in this really like unfair way in this really anticlimactic way, you know? And so I was finishing my undergrad at the university of Colorado, but like I just mentioned to you, I, 
I didn't know how to move forward. I was so heartbroken and, and also just kind of, uh, lost because I put every, I'd sacrificed so much and put everything into the skiing thing and felt like I, I, I did what I was supposed to, and it didn't work out. And so to kind of regroup, I took a year off and went to LA just honestly, just to be warm and to feel like a kid and to have a bit of an unregimented life before heading to law school. But when I walked into that, that poker game, you know, I wasn't walking in as who I was a couple of years ago when I was like training hard and had this dream. I walked in there as like a heartbroken kid um, who was kind of pissed off at the world and, and maybe ready for a rebellion. And so I think that that was a big piece of it. In real life, was there that scene with your father? I presume he really was a, a Freudian therapist where you, where you were being dismissive of Freud. And it was because it was this really smart, subtle way of, I don't think I've seen a, a a daughter rebel against their parents in such a subtle way as in that in that scene. Well, you know, those are, those are the words of the brilliant Aaron Sorkin, but I, I, I certainly rebelled against my father every chance I got. And sometimes it was subtle and sometimes it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I would... Yeah. You know, I would always search for those moments. Um, and the scene really did happen. It didn't happen in Central Park. It happened in, in Malibu, actually. And it was uh, it was a bit different than it was in the movie. I, I finally did get the courage to ask my dad, why didn't you like me as much as my brothers, which has been something that I'd felt was the truth and it haunted me since forever. Um, and you know, really sort of like created this existential ache in my life. Um, And his answer was a bit different. It wasn't about witnessing him cheating on my mom. It was that he said, I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years. Um, I've seen what the world does to people. And I've seen in particular that it's even harder for women. And I wanted to make you tough. And he said, you know, there were times where I didn't like you as much as I liked your brothers because listen, I, I was difficult and my brothers were easy. Um, but he said, but I always loved you the same. And I just really wanted to make you formidable. And in that moment, I saw my dad for who he was and, and the story that I, I had been going, this narrative that I had in my head that, that really drove me to some dark places and, and created a lot of pain and suffering um, was changed. And it was a big lesson to me that you have to go to the places both in your life, you know, physically and emotionally that scare you because you can't, you can't hide from what the truth might be um, because it's just better to know. And it doesn't always turn out that way, but um, it, it was just this culmination of, I, I stopped skirting, I stopped hiding from it. And I just got vulnerable and asked the question. And then the answer I got, helped me to understand. Um, and my dad and my relationship has, is so wonderful now. And that, and that was the turning point. Oh, that's so great to hear. That's great that you have a great, good relationship with him. There's so, there's so much that goes unsaid between parents, isn't there? And it's, Oh my God. Yeah, I guess. But do you think, did you need that 10, 15 years in the sort of dark poker underbelly to become that person who could, I suppose, confront your father and ask him uh, upfront about everything? I think I needed that 10, 15 years in that world for a lot of reasons. Um, I think I had huge fantasies about making a lot of money and what I thought that that would bring me. 
Um, and I think if I hadn't done that, I would always lust for that life and think it was the answer. And what I discovered, it's not the answer. It, it's great to make money. Don't get me wrong. It's great to have dreams and be ambitious, but it's not the end all be all and that you have to have some sort of firm foundation of who you are, what you care about. And, and uh, for me, a, a core set of values that you ascribe to and, and, and don't abandon for dollar signs. Um, and, and it was also really uh, enlightening to me to see the people that I was surrounded by and the sort of like lack of satisfaction in them despite all the billions or all the access or all the privilege. So I, I think I needed to experience that world in order to be free of it, free of the fantasy of it. Um, it was very liberating. Uh, I needed to go off and do my own thing for sure. I needed to have my thing that had nothing to do with my father's dreams for me, my mother's dreams for me. Um, I don't know if it needed to be that, but it needed to be something. And, and did you ever expect poker? Had you played any poker when you, I mean, should we, should we tell the story or, or would you like to tell the story of, of how that came to be? There, there's no rhyme or reason for it. It was a, it was a, just a total accident. I never had any background with gambling or poker. Um, I, you know, I tell the story that when my boss told me I was going to serve drinks at his poker game, I went home and Googled what kind of music do poker players like to listen to and what do they eat? You know, and I made this super embarrassing playlist with songs like The Gambler on it and um, got, you know, just like a cheese plate and showed up and and was really blown away by what transpired over the next six hours, seven hours. Um, I was fascinated with the game. You know, it's uh, poker is a great game to learn to learn how to play the game of life. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's using this rational data, uh, in, in real time, and then having to also trust instinct and read people and, um, you know, sort of understand psychology and keep your wits about you find, find that, that, that calm place where, uh, emotions and fear, uh, don't get you on tilt. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating game. I think it's a really useful game, probably not at the stakes that the, the game, my games were at. I think at that point it's just damaging, but um, I was also fascinated by the people that were attending these games. These were some of the most famous, most powerful, most accomplished people in the world. And I was a, you know, kid in my early twenties from a small town in Colorado. So it was all fascinating to me. Where do you stand right now uh, with regards to naming names? Because naming names, again, it's a huge part of the film and how it was with the book and everything like that. And, and obviously some names appear to be out there on Wikipedia and stuff like that. So where how, where do you stand now? Yeah. So, you know, kind of moving forward, I when everything fell apart, it fell apart in an incredibly big way. And I found myself... 35 years old, millions of dollars of debt, um, a social pariah, you know, this network that I had spent so many years building was completely decimated, a convicted felon. Um, and, you know, the list goes on just as rock bottom as you could, as you could imagine. And for me, 
you know, when I sat down and tried to leverage that entrepreneurial uh, mindset, what I saw as, as a, as a valuable asset coming from this whole thing was the story. You know, I thought there was a uniqueness to the story and I also really needed to, if I was going to have a future and going to have any kind of opportunity, I needed to manage the narrative because the story that the tabloids was telling wasn't going to do me any favors. So I decided I would write a book and, and hopefully convince somebody really talented to write a movie. And then, of course, when I went to the publishers, they all wanted this celebrity infused book. Um, and so I had to figure out where I stood with that because I wanted to respect people, respect what I believed in, which, which is, you know, you don't, you don't do harm to people. Um, but I also needed to advocate for myself and, and, and have a future. So the decision that I arrived at was, okay, I'll, I'll name the names that have already been named. If it's in the public medium, if these people have confessed to playing in these poker games, which is by the way, not a crime and not really an ethical violation, <laughs> it's just a poker game. Um, then they're fair game. And the stories I know that could really do damage, no one will ever know, except for my attorneys. Um, and that's that. Okay. So some of the names are out there. and so, But in the film, nobody is named in the film, at least. And there's that Mr. X character. And he is, is it all right? And if I say anything that you, you, you know, we can take it out, of course. But he's supposed to be Toby Maguire. Is that right? That's not exactly right. So Aaron, Aaron and I spent eight months you know, in, in interviews and, and, you know, mapping out who the, who the people were and who the players were. And, and player X was a composite character based on many of the different characters that I had told Aaron about. He was horrible. <laughs> I know he was a composite character, but he was horrible. Yeah, no, he wasn't a, he wasn't a nice guy. That's for sure. And was Toby Maguire? No comment. That's fair enough. And yeah, I, and please don't feel pressured to comment about anything. Oh, I like it. Take the shot, and and if you know, doesn't offend me to be asked. Okay. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, I should ask more then. Who else? So who? So who was there? Just for because listeners like to hear names. Just like I think when you first got there, you were saying you loved to. You liked being around the names. We want to hear some names. Who? Who was? Who were names? Yeah. So Leonardo DiCaprio played a couple times because he's best mates with Toby Maguire, isn't he? Yeah. So Toby brought him. That's cool, isn't it? Did you so were you did you get friendly with Leo? No, but I was like, you know, I mean, I grew up being I was a young girl and Titanic came out. So like everyone was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, you know? Um, so it was quite shocking to be that young and all of a sudden find your and and not from Hollywood at all and have no designs to be in Hollywood and then all of a sudden find yourself in a room with people like that. Um Ben Affleck played and they're just at your, so Ben Affleck and Leo DiCaprio are just at your game. Yeah. That's so cool. It was interesting. And then for me, because what was really cool too is there would be politicians that would show up. There would be household names. There would be, um, you know, billionaires who their companies are, you know, some of the most famous companies in the world, people from the tech world, people from the art world, you know, some of the biggest uh, hedge fund owners. And, and so what you had is you had this table, nine people from all these different industries and all these different places, all speaking freely. And it was 
how's that? How do you not find that fascinating? You can't pay for that. You know, and, and the amount of notes that I took on my computer, that I, the amount of information I was learning about, um, the industries I was learning about, the insider uh, sort of stories, you know, I, it, it, was, it was a priceless experience. And then when I started my own games to be 25 years old and have this be your clientele and be running some of the biggest poker games in the world. And having to manage the books and manage all the people and no like actual recourse for collecting the debt. So always having to think on your feet, having everybody always trying to steal your game, um, you know, dealing with people winning and losing a hundred million dollars sometimes. And it's all on you. It's on your reputation. It was baptism by fire. And I, you know, I, I, what I learned in those days is that this is what I'm good at. I'm, I'm good at being an entrepreneur. I'm good at thinking on my feet. I'm good at problem solving. Um, I'm, I'm good at action. I'm good at uncertainty. And, and that was really, you know, that was enlightening for me because I didn't really know what I was good at. My dad told me when I was young, oh, well, because it was really clear. Jeremy was the athlete. Jordan was the brain. Who am I? You know, and my dad's like, well, you like to argue and read. So maybe you should be an attorney. And it was just because I probably argued with everyone at the dinner table because I was just all mad. <laughs> that was that Freudian bit I was talking about. Um, I loved that bit when uh, you, you were talking about being at school and actually your teacher told you that um, that the Freudian stuff's still been debunked or whatever it might be. And just a way to, and he suddenly gets really angry, Kevin Costner. I, I love that because it's exactly how I might try to wind up my parents is that little dig pretending that you're being innocent. Like, I don't even. What did you just say? <laughs> Man, see, but, but you know what's like, what was really just like, again, watching it again, and this time watching that film, knowing I was going to be talking to you, so then you're thinking about it even more like I'm putting myself in your shoes. So you you got involved, you sort of just fell into this poker world, working for this horrible guy who's shouting at you about bagels, um, getting the wrong bagels, and then he um, just drops you. And then you just did this mad thing to set up your own one. Do you want to go go into that? Yeah, well... Um you know, my boss was terrifying for sure. Um, and going up against, against him felt really scary, but I, 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 I had seen that I wanted to create my own games and, and create this company that produced these games, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I, I knew I could make millions of dollars. Um, and even I, I never thought I would do it for even eight years, but if you have an opportunity at 25 years old to make millions of dollars um, and it's not at that time, I wasn't doing it illegally and it didn't feel, you know, like immoral or whatever. I think you really jump on that. Um, it was an incredible way to build a network. It was exciting. And, and so I had seen this opportunity and I couldn't unsee it. And I just knew I could do it better than he was doing it. So um, I took a shot. I, I, I had, you know, all these observations from the eight months that I was serving drinks of how I could do it better. And so I basically put that whole thing into play. I wanted this to be like this incredible experience where someone walks into the room and feels like James Bond for a night. And it's not in a basement bar that smells bad. It's in the penthouse suite at the four seasons in Beverly Hills. And there's Cuban cigars and a much better soundtrack than my original stab at it, you know? Um, and, the right lighting and the right food and a full staff that already knows what you want before you even say what you want. Um, 
you know, higher stakes. So there's more adrenaline. Um, everyone at this, at every seat is taken by somebody who's prolific. Um, just this whole like fantasy. And so I decided I wanted to create that. And then I, you know, after I got fired and, and my boss said he was going to take the game instead, I planned a game for the next week and invited everyone except for him. It's new sort of like this new model of what I wanted it to be. Was it a relief when they turned up? Yeah, I didn't think, I was like, I'll be surprised if anyone shows up because even if, you know, they would for me, I, I thought that my boss would make a phone call and shut it down, but yeah, they all came. Did you worry that he might, you know, become violent or anything like that? Not violent. I don't know. I, I was terrified. And then the next, but there's a great story. Um, that wasn't told in the movie. And, and, you know, a lot of times in movies, we don't get the ability to tell the full, to show the full spectrum of a character. Um, And in my experience in real life, there's always more nuance. And so the next morning, and so, you know, just to give you some background, my boss that I worked for, he was, yes, very horrible sometimes, but also really was invested in me and, and wanted to teach me how to become, I guess, more formidable, kind of like how my dad saw me, right? Like you need to be tougher. The world's going to walk all over you. You're never going to survive it. And I would always, he would, you know, I would always be like, you need to be more kind and all this stuff. And and so the next day after I ran that game, he called me at like 5am and he was like, get over here. And I, I went over to his house and he had me sit in this guest house and wait for him. And I was like, he's going to murder me. Like he's going to kill me. Why did you go? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I went and I'm just sitting there and he makes me sweat it out. And I'm, I'm super scared, you know? And he walks in and he's like, I'm proud of you. I'm like, what? (laughs) He's like, I'm proud of you. You know, it was almost like I had graduated his training session of you, you went for it. You know, you, you weren't afraid. You weren't a baby. You weren't worried about what people would think you, you went for it. And from that point forward, you know, we were friends and equals. Wow. You earned his respect. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was a really cool moment. So do you, do you think there were, was it, was it, were there parts that were more difficult being a woman running this game? For sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I started the big game in LA, which was 10 times bigger than the, 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 the original game, there were these like serious poker players. They weren't pros cause I never let pros in, but these, these like sort of like older men who had been playing, who, who were serious gamblers. And I would say for the first six weeks, even though I, I was the one that handled the invitation. I was the one that decided how much credit you got. You know, I I had this, a lot of responsibility. I wasn't serving drinks. Um, For the first six weeks, they wouldn't look me in the eye. They wouldn't talk to me about anything pertaining to the business of the poker game. Um, And, you know, they would, they would ask one of the other players to come into a different room. and, And then, and then one of those players would eventually ask me the question that was asked, but yeah. So, um, you know, that there was that, um, there was a point where some of the wives, uh, felt threatened. And so they would come to the game, sit in the corner and like sort of eye me up and down and no way. Yeah. I wanted to be like, 
I don't want, I, I don't want your husband, right? But I'm not, I'm not doing this to like find a boyfriend. This is, this is my business. But these are like, I guess they're like celebrity guys. So like the wives are thinking like. Yeah. But you know, after it, it, the first couple games, I was enamored with the celebrities and then it was like, no, no, no. Like I found something that could set me up for my whole life. You know, I, and, and all of a sudden, like I found something that I'm good at that I can create and, you know, sweating, like swooning over celebrities just wasn't interesting. This was interesting. Creating this, this, this business for myself was interesting. Can't believe the women came and sat and watched you while sulking. Yeah. I was like, trust me after sitting around and listening to your husband's play poker for, you know, eight months, like I'm not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. And I guess the other, another part where you think about the fact that of of course you're a woman and this is maybe, this is maybe even old fashioned or sexist actually, because it's just like, Oh, can you sort of protect yourself? But then I'm thinking, well, I'm a man and I couldn't, of course I couldn't, I couldn't protect myself from anyone, but, but did that make it more dangerous? I don't know if it, I think everyone in that position um, is kind of putting themselves in some sort of danger. You know, if, if, if the word, if it's, if it's common knowledge that you run a big cash game, um, you're, you know, you're putting yourself in, in some sort of danger. And that certainly was the truth in New York City. Well, because the issue is some people don't always pay. I mean, that's, that's the risk. That's the risk that you run when you do these games. What if someone doesn't pay? And I guess the traditional way is to use force. Do you get some guys to go around and say, listen, you know, or we're going to beat you up or they do beat them up. And I, I was under the impression that you didn't want to go that way. Right. No, I couldn't do that. There's no way I really, I have this thing, like, I can't, I can't harm people. Um, and, and, and I actually, I say that, but towards the end of, of my poker running career, I actually feel like I kind of was indirectly harming people because um, there were a lot of people playing in the games that I think were probably gambling addicts. Um, and so I was providing the service. Uh, and, and so even though it wasn't a direct harm, um, it was indirect and, and it started to really wear on me. Uh, it started to... I started to really not sleep well at night. There, there was a guy in the movie who uh, was doing really well generally, and then he lost one time to an amateur, um, and then he kept losing and kept losing and kept losing, and he wouldn't go home. And was that another composite of, of different people? No, that was pretty, pretty, pretty based on on actual experience, and that was a really hard thing to watch. It also um, it was the first time I ever got stiffed any kind of like big number. You know, because he couldn't pay, and and I had to absorb some of that. Um, but for the most part, I I felt really bad badly for him, and and I guess it was the first time I saw someone become completely out of control, uh, and and not not be able to walk away, and 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 their life really came undone. You know, for the most part, most the people, particularly in LA and my big game in New York, that played in these games they just had so much money that even if they lost a million dollars at the end of the night, it wasn't going to change their life. And you got the impression then that some of those super rich ones enjoyed, uh, again, it was that Mr. X character who's a mix of different of people who seem to enjoy ruining lives. Yeah. Um, th- there, there was something very savage about some of the way that 
some of the players and, and, you know, that's, I guess that's the, the heat of battle in, in some ways. And, and sometimes people get into that, you know, it's interesting doing this, this podcast that I'm doing on athletes because some, and, and then also having the, the experience um, with the, with poker, you, you see some people they're competitive with themselves and then other people are just out for blood. It's a weird thing, isn't it? I suppose it's how people get, some people get status through that kind of dominance. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think it's, it's ego. What do what do you do then? You've got people like you know Ben Affleck, Leonardo DiCaprio, Toby Maguire, politicians, big people, and somebody's not paying them. Like they they're expecting their money, aren't they? Yeah. So essentially, I I, I had to cover it. I mean, I was in in LA. I was part of the. I I would say I was part of the bank. Like the whole the whole game. If the if if someone didn't pay, the whole game kind of got stiffed, myself included. Um, in New York, I was the bank. So if someone didn't pay, I wrote the check. That's a lot of pressure. It's pretty tricky. The The one thing that kept it pretty safe, well, first of all, you have to kind of be able to read your, your gambler. Um, there's a certain amount that I think no one will pay. And in the heat of the moment, everybody wants more ammunition to get out of a hole. So if they're losing a big number they'll take as much credit as you'll give them. And so you have to start to understand when to cut someone off and when to help them get out. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a difficult line to walk. A, a person losing a ton of uh, millions of dollars is a pretty like fierce animal. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, how much were you making at like the peak of the game, each game, what were you taking home? I know my number was like between four and 5 million at the end of the year. Like in total at the end of the year. I mean, it's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money. Although you are still at the table with these guys who are losing or winning that amount each week, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. But at the, you know, if you keep books on people, which I did most, and, and if you, if you're doing it right, you know, there's a, there's a certain art to it. And, the, and that is you want to seat this, this table with people who have essentially equal skill levels, close to equal skill levels, equal playing styles. So you don't want someone who's just locking down chips and going to take home all the money every time. You want action players and you don't want any pros. And if you do that properly and you look at your books at the end of the year, you have these huge volatile swings, but people are sort of about even. And then they're around even and and the the house is making money. How did the Russian mob get involved? Because that's when things took a bit of a dark turn. Well, there was the Russians and then there was the Italians. The Russian factor was a couple of the guys that were playing from Brighton Beach were these Russian-American businessmen, super sophisticated, uh, funny, you know, very, very, felt very normal. Um, And I also had private investigators that would vet everyone and and, and they were pretty good at their job uh, and their stories checked out. And it turns out they were running the biggest insurance fraud scheme in New York city history and that they had ties to the Russian mob and the feds had been on to them for quite some time. So that's how they started to become very interested in this game. Um, then the Italians got involved. Uh, one of some, one of the, the syndicates came to me and said, and I don't know which family it was, I really don't, said, basically, if you don't give us a piece, we're going to shut you down. And I turned them down. And then they sent someone to my house. And this guy 
broke into my house and put a, put a gun in my mouth and uh, which is just a terrifying, terrifying moment. Um, and he beat me up pretty badly and, you know, took everything out of my safe and basically said, we'll be back, you know, and, and it's going to be a different answer this time. And really it even said, I, I know where your family lives in Colorado. And if you tell anyone, we're going to go find them. And so it was just a really terrifying, dark moment. Uh, and not only am I putting my own life in jeopardy, I'm now putting my, my family's life in jeopardy. And what am I doing it for? I'm doing it for money. You know, and, and I was so alone in that moment. I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't call the cops. I mean, I, I, I was just completely in over my head. What, what runs through uh, someone's mind? What runs through your mind when there's a gun in your mouth? You're just so sh- like sure it's going to go off. You just, I remember my like teeth were chattering and I, and I was just like trying to be as still as possible. And then, and the moment seemed to last for for so long. You saw, I can imagine wanting to show the person that I'm sufficiently scared so that they then, like, you, you, you've got me, I'm scared, you can take it out now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all I can remember is just trying to make my teeth stop chattering because I didn't want that to trigger anything, you know? I'm so sorry you had to go through that. That's okay. And at the time, at that time as well, were, were you sort of hooked on drugs at that point? Yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had a pretty bad pill problem. What are pills? Is that ecstasy? No. Uh, I was taking a lot of Adderall. Like, so much Adderall is probably working more like meth. It was such a, such a large amount. Because the games would last sometimes 48, 72 hours. So it started out as kind of a just, well, this is what I have to do to make my life work. But then I would mix it with a benzo because to take the edge off. So, so like a Valium or a Xanax or something. And then I would drink and, I, and, and, and this, this concoction of the upper and the downer and the booze was what enabled me to kind of keep going. And, and things got so scary and so stressful and, and I just never slept. And, and so this was just a recipe for disaster. You know, did you ever see that film Requiem for a dream? Yeah. Was it like that? No, because I had to, because I was high functioning still. Yeah, I'm thinking of the the mother. Do you remember the mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I. Ha- I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure that that's how I came off on so- on some of some occasions when I, you know, just didn't didn't manage the the speed part well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I was I was really like out of my mind towards the end. I really was. Did people at, like at the table, did the sort of big stars and did, did they mention anything? No, I think I always kept it together for the games. Wow. That's professional. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed, <laughs> but, but, you know, horrible experience and that what happened in your home, that is awful. That is awful. And I suppose was, I guess that was a low point for you, right? Yeah. Did it sort of kickstart you into, into changing things was it a point where you thought okay this has got to change no because i was so addicted to the money and the 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 status and the success that losing that felt worse than death honestly so i don't really think there were any consequences that was going that were powerful enough to kind of rip me away i mean it, it really took the feds 
raiding my game and, and seizing all my money for me to kind of slink away. Are you happy they did? I am. I am. It was getting really dangerous. I was, I, I, I completely lost myself. I was out of control. Um, I was making very bad, reckless decisions and I wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to leave. How did you get off the drugs? I went to rehab. What was that like? <laughs> it was crazy. So, uh, you know, after the, after that all happened, I moved back in with my mom and my grandmother. But then I would take these trips to, I took a trip to California to hang out with some of the degenerate degenerates I'd met. And we were just doing a bunch of drugs. And, you know, I wasn't facing the music. My life was ruined and I, I needed to face it. And my mom knew what I was doing. And so she and my brothers and my aunt, who's been sober for 30 years, flew out and we were like at the montage partying and they just showed up in the piano bar. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> God. You know, I had just done it. I had just come off a bender and, um, and I, I agreed to go to rehab. At first, when I, when I just saw my mom, I was like, I'm not going to rehab. And then my brothers showed up and they walked in and they were like, we love you so much. And we haven't, you know, we haven't really known what's going on, but we know now and we're here and we just want you to get better. And they're my little brothers, you know, and I just, it just eviscerated me. And so I said, okay, I'll go, but I'm only going if it's like a really nice rehab. And they're like, it's great. It's in Florida. It's probably on the water. Was it very emotional seeing your brothers? One of the most emotional moments of my life. Um, and my aunt and uncle have been sober for 30 years and they're like, this girl needs a reality check, you know? And, um, so they sent me to this very unfancy rehab in the middle of Florida. It was, I thought I was like going to like a, a bougie place in Palm beach and it was real deal, you know, but the people there, uh, were incredible and they, you know, they, they want you, they wanted us to get better and they had incredible tools to teach us. And, and, you know, there was hilarious moments of like going to Walmart and they, they won't give, you know, when you're in rehab, they won't give you cash because they're afraid you'll escape and go get drugs. So they gave us these gift cards and they're like in increments of $2, you know, and I'm like, I'll take a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Do they work on alcohol and stuff? The gift cards? Well, I think you had, I think we had like rehab counselors there to watch, but yeah, they probably would. So um, the FBI were all involved in stuff. And in the end, you, I, you got off with 200 hours community service. Was How was the community service? It was actually incredible. Um, so, you know, I, I had an opportunity to... I got, I got federally indicted. Um, after two years of not running a game, not having anything to do with that world, uh, the, the FBI, 17 FBI agents showed up with machine guns and arrested me in the middle of the night um, because they'd been building a case for two years. Why did they have to come in with so much force? You know, I, it's a good question. I think that, I don't think they thought I was going to be like a super dangerous person. I think I think these things are strategized and they wanted me to be sufficiently scared. So I would make certain decisions. And um, 
I think that that was what it was. But the, the, the agents that came were actually super nice. I even fed my dog breakfast. Oh, well, that's nice. That's not what they never show that in the films when they do an FBI raid that they feed the dog. I know. Oh, okay. Well, that's quite nice. And you did this. And, but there are certain things like you can't ever vote again and you can't go to Canada. Although I've been to Canada many times, but that was what I was told. And I guess basically what it is, is when you get to the border, when you get to customs, if they run your criminal record and they show that you're a felon, then they can turn you away at the border. But a lot of times they're just kind of like, they, they, they obviously don't run everybody's like criminal background because that would take forever. Um, so it's just kind of a, it's a coin, you know, it's, it's a coin toss. We'll see. And do they ever, do people recognize you or at least when they read your name or when they see you in, in person, like, Oh, it's Molly Bloom. Um, the name. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't get recognized uh, that often, you know, just walking around the streets. Okay, but the name then. So let's say you're going up to customs in Canada and they're like, oh, you've got a record here. Oh, wait, that's you. I mean, it depends. Like, I, I really love Canada, so I hope that doesn't happen. I hope not as well. I've never been there, but I think, it's, I think it seems very nice. Yeah, it's super cool. People are nice. It's outrageous that you can't vote. Can, is anyone who's got any kind of indictment or been to prison or is that you can't vote again? Is that how it is? Yeah. So um, there are some new, newer laws being introduced that as soon as you're done with paying off all your fines and your probation, you can, some places you can vote again in states. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a huge bummer. Uh, I was a political science major. I've always really felt super grateful for the democratic process and for voting and and so that's been a hard one that seems insane to me it's quite a fundamental right i i I think so too do you ever um hear from any of the big name people anymore and especially after the film were any of them in touch to be like hey that was me wasn't it (laughs) you know i did this i did something right before the movie came out that i'm still kind of on the fence about i i completely changed my numbers my email addresses everything okay out of fear no if it was so much out of fear as it was i knew that all these people who had just disappeared from my life when everything had bottomed out were most likely gonna you know sort of come back in and and i had this incredible small circle of people who had been ride or die and you know i was about to go into something that was very wonderful, but also challenging. And I was newly sober. Um, Cause the first time I got sober, I, I didn't stay sober. And then I got sober again later, right before the movie came out. And, and that was when I, I think really took it seriously and, and kind of conceded to the fact that I am, a, you know, like I, I will always be an, an addict unless I'm and and the and the way to, and I have to practice the twelve steps or or whatever the 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 process is to stay sober. And I was newly sober, and this movie was coming out about my life, and I just wanted I wanted to, to it to be simplified, and I wanted I I didn't want all the people that I knew were going to come back to have access. Well, you still got. I mean, now it was quite easy. I, you can just send you a message on 
I don't I don't encourage um, all the listeners to do that because because Molly's busy. But you can just your messages are open on Twitter, so people could now. Yeah, I didn't have social media back then, though. <laughs> okay, yeah, of course. So it's been that was like what five years ago when the film came out. Yeah, it was 2018. Is that is that four or five years sober now? Uh huh. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. That's the thing people say, isn't it? It's, it's, to me, it seems quite patronizing, but everyone says it. No, I think it's nice. Okay, good. Congratulations, then. I, I stand by that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, because this podcast is coming out, for example, is out about the, the athletes and stuff. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a couple of things. I'm, I'm working on my second book now. And it's really just, you know, it's in, this, in an interesting way, I've been looking for power my whole life, you know? through success, through sports, like how can I be powerful? How can I have agency over my life? And I don't think I found it until I completely became as powerless as a human can be until everything fell apart. Um, and I, I mean, the, the government had my passport uh, and I was broke and scared and addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it was from that moment forward, not relying on any of the external things that I started to cultivate this real power that allowed me to have this incredible comeback and, and navigate these incredible things. Um, and so the book is about that. It's about what I learned uh, about cultivating this power that I think we all have inside to change our life, to have agency over our life, to, um, to perform well, to have good relationships. It's really about how, how much power do I have over my own mind, my own emotions, and thus my own circumstances? And there's some real practical life stuff. It's not woo-woo that we can cultivate in our life that I, that I learned in, in, in that moment of deep desperation um, that I really feel compelled to share. I, I like not woo-woo. I think that should be on the front cover of the thing. There, look, there are a few people in the world probably better placed than you to, to give that kind of advice and, and to, to look back at you know where you were and where you are and that kind of thing. So I think that sounds fascinating. When's that going to be out? Do you have an idea yet? I would say like 12 to 18 months. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk again when it comes out. I would love that. Yes. Um, and then that's a, you, you're, you know, the other part of that is telling stories. I, I you know, the, the thing that I learned about writing a book and working on a movie is that I love telling, I love stories. I love other people's stories. I love, you know, it's just, I love being a storyteller. And so um, this, this podcast that I'm doing with uh, Stitcher, Sirius XM and, and uh, Film Nation and the producers are Gilded Audio and they're great, um, is about Olympic scandals and controversies. But it's not just that story. It's the story of, the person behind it, the causes and conditions, you know, what's the backstory? What led you to make this choice? Um, talk, walk us through what happens after you make this choice or after this event happens. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's very entertaining to hear these stories and there's some crazy stories as you can imagine from the Olympics. And there are the stories that we all know about, but then there is a whole sort of like underbelly of other stories that we don't know about that I, every time I, I sit down to do one of these, I'm just like, my mind is blown, but, but also seeking to understand and normalize that humans are flawed. And sometimes we make decisions that seem crazy to an outsider, but when you, when you're walked through it, start to become less insane. And, you know, like 
help us to understand. Torch with Molly Bloom, which people can get in all the normal podcast places, right? Right. You've been on the edge, Molly Bloom. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. It's been great to be on. Wasn't that wonderful, ladies and gentlemen? Molly Bloom and Amanda Knox. That is a cool couple hours of a show. I'm sorry we weren't able to do it live. I know you've gotten used to that. We did think the show must go on. Sean is working his bottom off at the moment, going around the country, doing all these podcasts. Uh, I'm taking a little holiday. It's just all over the place. There are things going on. It was just impossible, unfortunately, to do a live show. I think that's the thing with the live show, isn't it? I think when you do stuff that's recorded in advance, you can try to make sure you never, ever miss a a gap, which is what Sean tends to do with his podcast. I do it with my own one. Um, Never miss a week because you just want that consistency all the time. Uh, When it's live, sometimes things get in the way and it is just impossible to do it 52 weeks a year. Uh, so we've made up for it today. I hope you enjoyed this one and it gave you enough value and entertainment um, with Molly Bloom and Amanda Knox initially on my podcast On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Come check it out. I would love to hear from you. I always reply to the comments. Tell me that you first came, th- you heard about it through Sean's channel. I love hearing that and I always let Sean know. Um, and put those comments down below. Let Sean know how you feel about him. Tell him how much you miss him, that, that lovely, lovely, sexy man. And we'll be back with something next week, hopefully. Uh, Just let us know. Let us know what you want to see. Please do think about signing up to Sean's wonderful Patreon so that he can afford to do all the things he does. It's, It's no easy task. The guy is a workaholic. I really think that he is. Um, And otherwise, have a lovely week. Have a lovely summery week. Hope it's nice wherever you are. And uh, I'll see you soon.